This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. French Grand Opera was lavish and spectacular, and in many ways, the antithesis of Wagner's aesthetic ideals. Yet, some say Wagner had a major influence in the work of French Grand Opera master Jules Massenet. What's the common ground between these two composers? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. everyone, I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and before we dive into our episode for today, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about an exciting travel opportunity. From September 30th through October 9th, 2020, I will be traveling with fellow opera lovers on a cruise through Italy, Croatia, and Greece. Throughout the voyage, we'll visit amazing historical sites, including La Fenice, the Riace Bronzes, and the UNESCO World Heritage Site at Ravello, a city with a rich musical past and present, and so much more. In addition to these exciting offshore excursions, you'll be treated to nightly onboard concerts featuring the works of Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Verdi, and Puccini. And I'll be providing a series of exclusive guild lectures paired with each performance. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experience the Mediterranean through the eyes of an opera historian, and I would love for you to join me on this adventure. Cabins are still available. For more information, visit metguild.org travel or call 212-769-7009. I would say bon voyage, but since we're beginning and ending this cruise in Italy, I'll say buon viaggio. Now, into our episode. If Massenet was so influenced by Wagner, then how did he carve out his own uniquely French style? I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer and musicologist Matthew Timmermans presents part two of his Wagner Across Borders talks, guiding us through the Wagnerian influences in Massenet's masterworks. Hello, everyone. I see some familiar faces. This is always good. Do we have any newcomers today who weren't here for the last one? Just so 
Ah, okay. So my one newcomer who I'm going to now put on the spot. Um, no, not at all. Um, I do have a little review. I'm sure many of you uh, would probably appreciate that. I know I always appreciate a bit of a review. We have Wagner. Uh, so we explored how he traveled from uh, Riga, Latvia, which I'll get close to this. You can see here, and he traveled all the way from there to uh, France, and then he went to Paris, of course. Um, and then this was, as we know, where most composers were making their wealth and fame, unlike before, where usually it happened down here in Italy, um, and now those composers like Rossini, uh, Meyerbeer, and we saw this actually earlier with Gluck as well, are now going to France, where the money is to make opera, really. Um, and so this was the main reason why Wagner made his opera Rienzi, which we mentioned he was making already in Riga, Latvia, when he was conducting there, with his sights set on going to the Opéra, which is the big sort of uh, where Grand Opéra happened in Paris. Um, and so with Rienzi, it did, although it never was produced by the Opéra, it was uh, produced in Germany, in Dresden, and that was thanks to Meyerbeer, who helped him with his connections. And what made it so famous in Wagner's career, I mean, many of you think, oh, Tristan und Isolde is what made him famous, or Lohen, well, Lohengrin made him quite famous as well, but Tannhäuser and things like that. It actually was really this opera that did it because it was the first successful German adaptation of French grand opera for the Germans, and they were very excited about that. Um, and something interesting to note about it, um, it's sort of been, at first it was looked down upon, really, because, of course, Wagner created this sort of Germanic image about himself, and that was very much, uh, had to reject the idea of French opera, which was frivolous and, as we'll talk about today, you know, sort of superficial. But there have been people who have now gone back and sort of re-looked at uh, Wagner's career and this particular opera, sort of looking past that narrative and seeing how what he did here actually was he tried to basically outdo all of the French uh, grand operas that had come before him, many of which he had performed while he was in Riga as a conductor. Um, and so Rienzi actually happens to be this sort of massive project, five acts, as we'll talk about the things about for French Grand Opera, but it actually had to be severely cut when it was done in Germany because it was just too much for uh, the German opera house to produce. So with that question, what exactly does it take to make a successful French Grand Opera? Um, and so here I'm going to draw on one of the first composers to make what was later called a French Grand Opera, which is... Uh, Daniel Aubert. Does anyone know this name, this opera composer? I don't know if his opera has actually ever been done at the Metropolitan Opera here, but he did a very famous opera in uh, 1828 at the Opéra, and it was called La Muette di Portici. Um, and so this was sort of what made Grand Opera at the time, and it was amazing to many people, including Wagner, who was, uh, performed it himself uh, in Riga, Latvia, and then later would, uh, I presume, see it at the Opera, um, I believe. I actually don't know. If, I, I believe he did when he went back there, when he was there in the 40s. But anyway, um, so what, when Wagner ended up, after leaving, as we know, Wagner left uh, Paris because no one wanted to produce what he had there. Um, and so he went very sort of with a sore ego back to Germany and was like, I'm going to make German opera now. But he did try his hand again at grand opera because, again, that's where the money was, and who didn't want that? And we all know that Wagner was very much running from his creditors, so he could use some money. Um, anyway, the point being, he went back in 1961 because they wanted to produce his Tannhäuser, which is an opera he produced uh, again in Germany, but then adapted for the opera. Unfortunately, it was a failure to the French public, um, although for reasons that weren't necessarily about largely most aspects of the composition. But anyway, we'll talk about that. Um, and so he met with Aubert, who 
had many sort of meetings with him because he was, of course, Wagner was working at the Opera, giving them ideas about his opera and what he wanted done with it. And then Aubert was kind of, you, you meet famous people, you're there basically. Um, and so what Aubert said after hearing the plot of his opera was, ah, so there will be spectacle. It will be a success, then never fear. And so this is where we get this general sort of stereotype about French Grand Opera, where it's all about what's happening on stage, the, the, the spectacle basically. How spectacular can you make this opera to engage your audience? There is a bit more to it that, than that, but of course, a lot of the, um, the narrative was constructed by some of these other composers that became very famous later, such as Wagner. Um, but we'll look a little more at how complex that image is. Um, just a little thing to say about Wagner before we continue with Tannhäuser. So the reason that Tannhäuser actually ended up failing was it did have very, um, did, have any of you seen Tannhäuser by the way? Okay, we do have a few people. So in Tannhäuser, it's basically, it goes from, uh, it starts in this sort of um, pleasure land, shall we say, um, of Venusburg, where you have the goddess Venus, um, and, and she's speaking with the main character, Tannhäuser. So of course you have these um, pleasure gardens where you have dancers around the stage doing whatnot on stage, and it's, it's very, you know, sensuous and exciting and lots to look at. And then from there you move to this very romantic set where you're in um, watching the pilgrims go across um, this, this sort of valley. Um, and so again, these contrasts were very exciting to show scenically, right? So here Aubert, when he's talking to Wagner, is thinking, oh, that's going to succeed, that's great. Except Wagner did one thing particularly that uh, was not liked by the French Grand Opera public, and that was his ballet was in the first act. Now the ballet, which had to be in French Grand Opera, this is one of the things we'll talk about, is very important because a lot of people who went to see might have been sponsoring someone in the ballet corps or, you know, other things. Um, and so they wanted to see those people dance. And so the jockey club uh, would not actually go for the first act. And so those were some of the main people who wanted to see these dancers. Um, so in the end, when Tannhäuser, uh, they didn't go to the first performance, but they did go to the second performance. Or was it the third? It's one of them. Anyway. Um, and when they went, They'd missed the ballet, and so they proceeded to whistle through the rest of the performance, in basically ruining it. And then it was after that that Wagner then removed his opera after the third performance, um, and that was the end of his forays in Paris, until, of course, his works came back on their own accord. So we mentioned French Grand Opera is very important, spectacular effects. There's, we've also mentioned that five-act structure that I said. So there's usually five acts. There's sometimes four. It's not always a, a hard, fast rule. Um, there's the ballet we mentioned. But then the last thing to mention is usually the plot. And so the plot in French Grand Opera, what's very big is to have sort of this romantic plot, kind of like Romeo and Juliet, you have the romantic plot, but then you have the bigger political um, situation, which is of course keeping them apart, right? And so you have to have this sort of constant negotiation going on to draw the plot line out for all five acts. Um, and we particularly see that in Rienzi, where Rienzi is sort of this um, uh, political revolutionary, and then his sister, and of course someone on the other side, um, is uh, in love, and so that causes problems, right? And there you have your five act, something to go throughout the five acts. Anyways, so despite the fact that Wagner had many criticisms of grand opera, he does actually admit in these reminiscences I mentioned that it might have been grand opera that gave him the idea for music drama. Now music drama is basically sort of the, the word that got associated with Wagner's works after Tristan Uchizolda, which hopefully we'll see next season. Um, and so this is this idea of having the cohesive work, where the music is very much inspired by the drama. And so it's not about just having that aria for that singer there and that ballet there for somebody just to see the, the court ballet, for example. It's very much the music has to come out of and really support the drama, basically. 
Um, and so when Wagner talks about going to see La Muette, which I mentioned earlier, he talks about the fact that no longer was it really obvious where the arias and duets were in the conventional operatic sense. And it really felt like everything was moving toward these big finales that would happen at the end of each act. And as a result, it seemed like the music was inspired more by the drama than by the use for the particular performers or whatever maybe the audience wants in a superficial sense. And so, of course, that grows out later to this sort of very Wagnerian idea of music drama that will come back later in our presentation as well. So I will speak about this picture a little bit first. So what this is, this is actually an opera trading card. What this is, this is Act 5 of La Muette, which is, of course, the most exciting act because, well, it's Act 5. Um, and so what we have here, we have our uh, heroine here, which is Fenella, who we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. And what's happening at the end, basically, is we have, um, basically, there's a political uprising. And so they're all fighting at the end, and it comes to its uh, climax here. And then Fenella naturally throws herself off a balcony because she's inspired to do so. And when that happens, naturally, oh my god, Vesuvius explodes in the background. Um, so again, very grand opera. But of course, what was so exciting about this particular scene and why I wanted to show it to you is that the effects, again, you can imagine the effects happening at the grand opera were so exciting to people and just blew their minds seeing this. I mean, it was painted. It wasn't exactly like, you know, erupting maybe today with an image or whatever. But it was this painted background of Vesuvius erupting that was so visceral and realistic. It just took their breath away. So what I, the next thing I did want to mention was Fenella, who I mentioned, which is sort of very odd for opera, is she's a mute character. She doesn't sing at all, and she's the heroine. And so some might say this is actually where the idea of the leitmotif came about from, um, and why, you may ask. Um, and this is particularly because what Aubert did in the orchestra was he sort of, when she would mime whatever went on, you know, she ran away from this person, she's in love with this person, um, the orchestra would attempt to illustrate that while she was miming it. So here, the orchestra, musically, is representing Finella and what she's doing on stage. So we might, in a way, despite Wagner later being sort of the antithesis to uh, French Grand Opera, he might have got his ideas from here. So despite turning away from French Grand Opera when Wagner left Paris, uh, we can see its effects in his later operas. We already mentioned Rienzi, which five acts, very spectacular, lots of chorus in that. We have the revolutionaries coming in. It's like this 30-minute chorus. Oh, my God, it's great. Um, we have that romantic political plot I talked about. And then, uh, well, there are very spectacular effects in that as well. Um, and then, but we can also actually see them in Dutchman. And so I mentioned this last week that with Dutchman, it was originally proposed for the opéra as a sort of one act in between some ballets. They really liked their ballets at the French Grand Opera. Um, and so with Dutchman, what we see is a, a spectacular plot, right? I mean, this huge ship coming on stage. Imagine drawing those storms in the background. Um, and then also, I mean, you can think about doing this humble village and then sort of having this ghostly presence. I mean, it really was a visual show. Um, and then also what we have is the chorus in Act 3. So in Act 3, we have the sort of local village uh, fishermen up against the ghostly sailors and sort of this interchange. And so in Grand Opera, you have um, a lot of these choruses where you have sort of um, exchanges between two or more choruses, which give it this really well, grand effect, really. Um, and then the third thing, so sorry, I mentioned that chorus because he did use it to audition for the opera, although they only bought the plot. So they clearly liked the scenic effects, but they weren't so much for the music. Um, and then the third thing was he did Senta's Ballad, which we looked a lot at last week, which was basically an entrance aria, right? This sort of typical, the soprano comes on stage and says, oh my God, look at me, I'm so talented. Okay, now we can move on with the rest of the plot. Of course, Wagner made it a little more integrated than that, but still the basic idea is there. So... 
Paris also, like Wagner, couldn't resist the other's influence, as we just established. And so despite rejecting Wagner in 1961 with his Tannhäuser, we actually do see a lot of these Wagnerisms, shall we call them, uh, come back later in the century. And so that's where our main man of today enters, Jules Massenet. Throughout the 19th century, it was really German opera, or French, shall we say, either or, was seen as the antithesis of the other. And so basically, in the German view, French opera, especially Wagner's view, was seen as superficial, bourgeois, capitalist, routine. And then, of course, in the French view, German opera was seen as overly complex, overly intellectual, and all of these things. Um, but then, so one thing worth noting is that the French public really loved Massenet. And so a lot of Massenet's reception has been sort of painted that way because, because the French loved him. Therefore, anyone who was a Wagnerian or liked the Germans could not love him. Anyway, so the idea of today's presentation is to sort of break that down now a little bit so that we can see how, in many ways, uh, Massenet was kind of a little Wagnerian. So where I want to start here is basically looking at the techniques that we, the Wagnerian techniques we explored last week and seeing where they pop up in Massenet's opera. And so the first opera we're going to discuss is Menon. Now, I know I've been talking a lot about grand opera right now, but Menon isn't actually technically in grand opera per se because it wasn't produced at the opera, which now is sort of embodied by the Palais Garnier, um, a, a large theater um, with lots of resources in Paris. It was actually produced at another theater called the Opéra Comique. Um, and so the Opéra Comique was more of a family-oriented theater. And they also had particular traditions about how their operas were performed. And so does anyone, actually, let me take a guess. Does anyone know another very famous opéra comique that's often for, yes. <laughs> so Carmen was originally an opéra comique. And so what's essential to it, other than it has to have a little bit of a lighter plot for family, and then, you know, some of them have interesting endings. Um, but then they have to have spoken dialogue in between all of the musical moments. Some of you might be thinking, oh, but Carmen doesn't have any spoken dialogue anymore. No, because later it was produced at the Opéra, and then of course it had to be through, through composed. So they basically turned all of the spoken dialogue into recit. Now, Massenet kind of wanted to find an in-between here. And so instead of, he didn't actually compose the dialogue into music necessarily, but what he did instead was he used leitmotifs in order to sort of make the melodrama moments where he sort of has the music that we maybe heard before or will hear in the future play underneath what they're saying if it's particularly significant. And in that way, it sort of creates the, a very, a more cohesive whole to the whole opera rather than being sort of sing, 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 stop, sing, 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 stop, right? Um, and so, in a way, this is a sort of a Wagnerian notion, this idea of wanting to create this um, nonstop flow of well, uh, the plot until the end of the act, basically. That does bring up what I want to focus on for a significant period of time in this lecture, which is basically the idea that there are a lot of leitmotifs that are in Manon. And despite the fact that the opera is seen as sort of French and superficial, it does have, the music is often referring to the plot and is very, actually, quite tight-knit. So, Let's get into that. First, here we start in our opera, and we get our, one of our first of the, the many leitmotifs that happened in Menon. And so this is when, uh, for those of you who don't know the plot necessarily, Menon is on her way to the convent because her family's very poor, so they can't really give her a dowry. And so she's being sent to the convent, but she stops in this little town, assumably to refresh herself, I suppose. And she gets out of the wagon. So what we're going to hear first as she's getting out is her leitmotif plays, um, and you'll hear that here. 
there, like we saw in Dutchman, when we saw Senta come on stage and immediately sort of express herself, her motif rang out before it was even mentioned what it is. But here we have, he tells us at the end what we just heard, basically saying, oh, look, it's my cousin or my cousin, Menon, let's go. Um, and so then we immediately hear it come back quite soon after as Menon sings of her trip. And so I would sort of associate this motif with sort of Menon, yes, but also her inner curiosity, which we see kind of explode over the course of the opera. Um, so we're going to hear her actually uh, sing uh, that light motif in her first aria. Um, I should, I see some people being like, oh, I know who that is. Um, so the first one we saw was, um, does anyone know who's in the first clip we saw actually? Maybe I'll, I'll play more from it. So maybe you'll get it when she starts singing. No? Okay, we'll come back to that. Does anyone know who this is? Yes, this is Beverly Sills, um, who was quite famous, uh, a very famous Menon uh, in the 60s and into the 70s. This production was done in 77. I believe it was New York City Center, Art City Center, um, City Opera. And um, uh, what's interesting to note is actually that Beverly Sills loved this role. She actually really wished it would be performed more often. It was one of her favorite roles. And unfortunately, it wasn't because it's not, I mean, it's in the canon, but it's not, you know, it's not Butterfly, right? Um, so here, uh, what I said before, we're going to hear that same motif, but now she's going to sing it. So again, if, for those of you who were here for Senta's Ballad, it's a very similar idea. Menon comes in, uh, her leitmotif plays in the orchestra, we don't quite know really what it is yet, but he tells us maybe we have an idea, and then the aria begins, and oh look, she's singing it, and it's clearly associated with her, right? Just like Senta sang hers. Um, so now we have an, our next motif that they're going to come together uh, because Massenet will sort of combine them to give you know, particular messages that he's trying to get across. Uh, so our next one is of uh, Guillaume's Companions. Um, and so Guillaume is a, a very rich man who, I guess we could say, keeps his women there for entertainment, but also provides for them so that they stay beautiful. Um, and so here is when he comes out and sees Manon, of course, clearly has sights on making her one of those women as well. But we'll, what is important to notice here is his companions, uh, is the word apparently I'm going to give to them today. Uh, we'll hear their motif, which will come back quite often for Manon. <laughs> And then we hear it in the orchestra now. So it's that. Bum, 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 bum. Right? Very catchy. Um, so now we'll hear it. Um, basically, Menon then has another aria, kind of a typical, I don't know if any of you know the Cavatina 
style. So in Italian opera, there's something called a cavatina, which is usually an entrance aria. And then there's a slow cantabile at the beginning. Um, and then that will stop and some action will happen. Someone will be like, oh my god, your lover's coming. And then, of course, the cabaletta will happen, which is the fast part where whoever it is, usually the soprano coming in, gets really excited and adds some high notes. So we kind of have a similar thing happening here. But again, Massenet is making it, um, he's sort of getting away from the conventions by um, A, giving it more meaning with leitmotifs than simply virtuosic display, um, and also making it less, again, about those high notes necessarily. We're making them seem like they're for emotional effects. So you'll see, if you listen to that aria more, there's parts where she laughs, and that's where the coloratura happens, right? You're hearing her laugh, but she's also getting to show off. Um, anyway, so in this part, Menal is basically talking to herself that she has to forget sort of her dreams, or her daydreams, she calls them, because she has to go to the convent and do what her family wants her to do. And so, but what we'll hear, of course, all of a sudden we'll hear that motif of Menon that we heard at the beginning, um, more what I called Menon's curiosity, and then after it we'll hear what she's curious about, um, and then we'll hear the companion motif come back. So there's Menon's motif. What becomes interesting about this motif is it constantly comes back. It showed of now that we know what it's meaning, it will come back to show her inner psychology without necessarily her always saying what she's referring to. Um, kind of like we see that in Wagner a lot, particularly Tristan and things like that, where we hear the, like, the motif of love come back, but we don't know that Isolde is in love with him yet. But oh my God, the orchestra is telling us she is, right? We're already sort of seeing this effect in Manon as well, although Manon did come after. Um, and so this next part, as that aria goes on, she then reprimands herself, kind of like we saw at the beginning of it, um, with this next motif, which I call the voyant motif, where she's sort of saying, you know, but I have to forget those things, and my story, the story of Menon Lesco basically is supposed to be going to this convent. And so we'll just hear that. It will come back at the end. So we'll just, we'll hear it, and then we'll not hear it again for a while. So we will hear this quickly come back in Act One, or still in Act One. So she meets Desgrieux, who sees her, falls in love with her the moment he sees her, of course. And then as he sort of, you can clear their, clearly see that they're in an intimate um, position at the moment, so they've already, you know, have feelings for one another. And then she sort of pulls away for him, from him, and then the voyant Manon motif that we just hear goes off, basically saying that she has to go to the convent. And then she sort of explains her situation to him, being like, I'm going to the convent. Um, and then, of course, he says, no. Um, but we'll get there, just so you can hear it again um, in another context. Ah, 
So again, we can see how, like in Wagner, they come back whenever anyone's speaking about something related to it. And this comes back, I'm really pointing at this one because we're going to leave this one for a really long time. And then we're going to come back to it because it kind of has a very interesting, ambiguous ending when it's sort of tacked on there. So we'll get to that. Um, now I want to go to Act Two, where one of my favorite motifs happens. It only happens in Act Two, but I adore it. Um, and it's interesting because, again, it shows this sort of inner psychology that I was mentioning that now is appearing in the orchestra as opposed to out of the character's mouth. So now we're in Act Two. At the end of Act One, they ran away together, and now they're living the poor life. And while they're very happy with their love, we do get the sense that Manon still wishes for richer things, as we know, because she desires to be like the companions. And so what happens here, basically, is that Lescaut, her brother, comes and brings this man who's disguised, named de Bretigny. Um, and basically, this man wants to come, and he offering, he's offering her riches. And so he's basically saying, this man wants to sort of um, support you and give you all the things you want. Um, and, but what the sort of side angle to give Menel sympathy here is that um, Desgrieux's father is going to kidnap him because he doesn't want him being with Menel. So um, that's sort of, it's a way to make Menon not seem completely like she's just going after money. As we'll see with the Puccini version, they sort of leave that out. So it's a little bit confusing how we're supposed to sympathize her, but not the point. Um, so what we're going to hear here is in the orchestra, we're going to hear what I call the Bretigny motif, which is basically talking her desire for these riches. Um, and so first we'll hear it in this one, just in the orchestra, as he's talking and telling it to, uh, about it. And we'll hear it more as we uh, go on. It's in the orchestra. <laughs> Here it is again. Here it is again. Here it is again. Here it is again. So, <laughs> yes, I do love that part. Um, so now what happens is we switch to Desgrieux and Lescaut, and of course, Grieux is telling him how much he loves Manon and how he's going to convince his father. Um, and then we come back to Manon, who's still talking to uh, Bretigny. And what happens now, you'll notice before, it was always in the orchestra, right? It was the ba-da-da-da, ba-da-da-da-da, right? Now what happens is she's clearly getting more convinced. And as uh, Bretigny is trying to convince her, he'll now double the orchestra and sing it with the orchestra. So musically, what it's telling us here is that as it's sort of mimed and it's done in unison between the character and the orchestra, well, before it was just a suggestion, now he's really trying to persuade her, okay? And then we'll see later when it's clearly stuck in her mind, okay? So here's this part where they're singing it. He'll sing it with the orchestra, and it happens right when we start. Here it is again. Here 
So there's something I just wanted to note at the very end of that scene that I noticed myself, but it's very sort of brief and hard to hear, so I didn't want to say it before. But you'll notice how at the end, after the mano, mano, right, that happened many times. That, so that's the Birkettini motif. And at the end, when she's sort of saying and conceding that she's going to do it, there was this part where she goes, pa pa pa, right? She, I mean, you kind of heard it, which sounds like um, pa 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 pa, which kind of sounds like the companion's motif. So maybe she's suggesting, oh, maybe I'm going to do that. Right? I kind of, I don't know, it's not enough of an exposition of that motif for it to be really obvious, but I have my suspicions. Um, so now what happens, basically they, Lescaut and Bretigny have planted their seeds and they are now leaving the room. And so then we're left with Desgrieux and Menon, and he's telling her how much he loves her. And then she's of course thinking, oh, but this is such a stressful time. And then what plays in the orchestra, but the Bretigny motif where she's clearly thinking, oh, this is so hard, but oh, I wouldn't mind that. Um, so we're sort of hearing again the orchestra telling us what she's thinking. So they're leaving. Here's the, or the motif. Hear the fateful knock at the door, which is, of course, the person coming to kidnap Griot when he goes out the door. Um, and so then we have our next scene, and this is the reason I love this motif is because it comes back in the most grand fashion. Um, and so this happens in her audio, which I just had to use Beverly Sills for. Um, so this Menon is now the, the knock happened. Griot goes out. She knows where he's going. Um, and then basically uh, she sings this recit. So a recit is the part, usually the speak songy part before an aria. And then what happens is then as she's sort of debating if she did what was right or wrong, we hear the Bretigny motif come back and it becomes great, uh, a little more lavish than before because it's very much in her mind and she's being convinced. And then at the end of it, she goes up and flips it up the octave and takes this huge high note kind of telling us that, oh, she's taking the offer. Um, and then we go into her very famous audio, which is uh, the Petite Table, where she's sort of saying goodbye to all the things. We're not going to listen to the aria, but she says that's the contrast between her escaping, but at the same time being sad and leaving all this behind. Anyway, so we're listening to the Bresigny motif in the orchestra, and also then she'll sing it. Motif. Comes back. We won't hear that motif again. I think it's so much 
uh, more satisfying when you know what's really happening because that's all in one act. That's all in act two. It kind of comes and then it sort of unfolds uh, throughout that act. So now I want to backtrack a little bit. So we're back in act one. And I mean, of course, you all thought, he missed the love duet, though. When did they meet? So let's go back there. Um, and this is where we hear many of the, the motifs that basically happen throughout the entire opera. They come back again and again, but they're the ones that really make our hearts melt. So here, Grieux, as I said, sees Manon, falls instantly in love with her. You'll get the idea if you read this uh, subtitles. And of course, when he sees her, the motif that goes off is their love theme. And then what I do want to note is here, you'll notice that he talks during it. So this is one of the motifs that was very much used as a way of bringing sort of melodrama, melodrama usually being when there's some sort of music aiding the text. Um, we sort of, yeah. Uh, and so you'll see how he's, again, cohesively uh, going from the scene we saw before with music and now connecting it with this leitmotif, and then they'll, again, spontaneously burst into music. But again, gives it more of an a organic whole, shall we say. All right, so we're listening for that love theme, which you'll hear in the orchestra, because he's speaking. Uh, so what we're about to hear now, we're about to hear that love motif come back, but this time, of course, He's going to sing it. So there's nothing more romantic than that, having a leitmotif, particularly for you, sung after hearing in the orchestra. Um, so we will hear this come back. And so basically, throughout this act, this duet is a little free form in comparison to other duets, where they don't completely sing for the whole thing. There's parts where they talk during it, and then some other themes come in. So it's kind of unclear where the duet begins and ends. Ah, but Massenet makes it very clear by having this motif sort of unite the entire thing, where it keeps coming back in some slightly altered. So what we're about to hear is the end of the duet, just to give you a taste. Um, where we hear they're singing uh, this duet, uh, Vivrons à Paris, because um, he's convinced her to go to Paris with him. Um, and so they'll hear that, which sounds nothing like the motif. And then what will happen is she will, as they're running to the carriage that's still sitting back there to go flee to Paris rather than the convent where she should be going, um, we will hear uh, our companion's motif come back as she's kind of like, oh, but I would love to do that. And we know what happens with that in act two. Um, and then, of course, it washes away from her mind as the love motif comes back. She jumps in the carriage. But then what happens is uh, it doesn't quite resolve. So normally we would have a very nice cadential singer going five, one, and we would, everyone would clap because they know the aria is over, right? Here it's sort of left where it's like five, 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 five. <gasps> Cadence doesn't end. And then we're moving on into more plot before the final finale of the act. And so this is another sort of it's not necessarily Wagnerian, but it kind of gets associated with Wagner, this idea of not having set pieces where you know exactly where to clap, right? The idea being he's push, using the music to push the drama so that you get to the very end, and then you can interrupt what's happening on stage. Okay? So we'll, we'll just hear that particular scene. Okay. 
companion motif. What will she do? Love motif. Companion motif first. But it didn't resolve. So something else is going to happen after. And of course, that's Lesko being like, oh my god, where'd she go? Um, and of course, we don't need any of our, our, our peasant clothes that we had before when we go to Paris. Um, so now I just want to show you where these motifs have a life of their own that go through the entire opera, which is wonderful because they're just, you know, they're so moving. Um, so now we're switching back to uh, Beverly Sills here um, because she's the only one that can ham this up in the right way that I love. Um, so uh, here we're at Act 3. And this is now what's happened. We know that Degria has been kidnapped. Manon's gone and lived a life of luxury. Um, but during that life of luxury, she decided, no, I want love. And so, but Degria, of course, has now become a man of the cloth, and he's become a priest, a um, very popular priest, apparently. Um, and what happens, just, there's this part where all the women are like, oh my god, uh, let's go hear the, the priest. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> and um, so she walks in, and she's now coming back in her finery to come chase after him and bring him back from a life of chastity. Um, and so the first thing we hear when she walks in, of course, is the love motif. Um, so here, we'll hear it here in a second. Here it is. Love motif. So we all heard it in the orchestra again and again. She's pleading. The orchestra's telling us she's pleading again and again by playing this motif. Then a new mo uh, sort of light motif or more theme comes in here that Menon sings. It's probably the most famous from the opera, which is the Nesse Plus uh, theme, where she basically says, is this not my hand? Is this not my voice? Is this not me in front of you? Do you not want me? I'm Menon. It's one of the best parts in the opera. Um, so we'll hear that here as she sings it. It's very catchy.
you'll have that stuck in your head for days. Um, so then what happens, of course, is he denies her on her first uh, attempt, and then the motif n'est plus, the one we just heard, comes back, and of course some high notes are added because she's being all the more persuasive, and then she sings through that, and then what happens is he gives in, they sing their final high note, and then our love theme from the first act duet thunders in the orchestra and takes us home until the end of the act. Right? get to the resolution I'm sorry the video I could only find them on YouTube because it's I believe the sills has actually only been reproduced on it hasn't been reproduced on DVD so it's very hard to get my hands on anyway so now we're in act five um, Menon has been uh, rejected from Paris society and is now in the Americas where she is dying um, and so what happens here is now uh, uh, Grier has run after her and found her and basically, he is now trying to hopefully revive her somewhat by keeping her from falling asleep. And so they do this by, of course, remembering their love. And so we'll hear here's another one of those melodrama parts where they'll talk and talk about the memories of Act One, as well as Act Two with the petite table. And then um, we'll hear the love motif over top of it. <laughs> Such good memories. That time I took you from priesthood. Um, sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, so now what happens is we move on and she is very much starting to fade. And so, of course, he revives her somewhat by singing our Nesse Plus theme. And they sing it together and it seems like she's going to make it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, my favorite part in that is where he hits her wig, and then she's kind of like, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to pretend that you got stuck on it. Anyway, um, so just quickly, I, me I mentioned that motif at the beginning that I said would come back. So we're going back there before we get to the moment that she fades and, of course, expires, as we know. Um, this is the voyant motif, so just so you remember what it sounds like. This is when she was saying goodbye to the pleasures that I want. I'm going to the convent. Um, so now back to Act 5. So after they sing the duet, she begins to expire. And then basically she says, I'm dying. And then at the end, she'll say, this is the story of Manon Lescaut. And then that motif ends the opera. Well, it, it plays. And then, of course, we have the Nessa plus come to give us our big romantic finish. But that's the second last motif, I guess, you see in the entire opera. <laughs> Our boy on metal in the orchestra. So that motif comes back, right, saying it's kind of, it could be one of two things, in my opinion. Um, one, it could be reprimanding her, saying, oh, had you gone to the convent and did what's expected of you as a woman in the 19th, well, I guess it's set in the 18th century, but in your time, you would have survived and not die. So this idea that because you didn't do it, now you've been killed. Um, but then I think it maybe in a more updated production, it could be used as a criticism, kind of saying, oh, look how the male gaze has said you have to do this and you can't, you have to do this being you have to go to the convent and be, um, you know, be chased um, and you have to resist um, decadence and you have to resist money and you have to resist and fun in some ways, all these things that Menon clearly saw within going to have high Parisian life. Um, and then sort of saying that comes back, saying this is the male view of how I'm supposed to live in this opera, the male or the dominant view, shall we say. Um, so I think there's two ways, and maybe a, maybe a modern production can come and really sort of give that feminist angle in there. I think that would be exciting. So progressive Wagnerian critics basically were like, well, that's just bad Wagner, which of course was them, again, this idea that the French public loved Menon. So they kind of had to be like, oh, but it can't be, it has to be an antithesis to everything German, right? So you have to keep in mind that there's sort of these biases floating around that need to separate, it has to be one or the other. It can't be sort of this fusion of the two. But of course, Massenet saw that there could be a harmonious connection between the two, the two systems being the sort of French grandeur, um, in addition to the sort of German complexity and leitmotifs, which we saw knit throughout all of it. Um, and so it's kind of, sorry, uh, it's interesting in a, he says this actually, this quote I put on the, the, the presentation in an interview in 1884. So 1884 is when the opera came out. So he was responding because it already had this label of being Wagnerian and sort of, it was how to, how to sort of um, negotiate that with people's views of what it meant to be Wagnerian or German um, versus French. Um, and so he kind of says, he basically, Massenet was very interested in Wagner in his early career. So he says, I really loved learning about Wagner when I was younger, but I do also recognize 
that Wagner's genius is very much a German tradition. And in order for it to be translated into French, we don't want to lose what our identity is. And so when we, we have to, what we have to do is translate those ideas into a French model. And so that's kind of what he was trying to do in Menon. So now to the other opera I promised I'd talk about today, <laughs> Werther. Um, so Werther is, of course, for those of you who don't know, it was based on a play, or a play, sorry, um, a story by Goethe, who's a German uh, writer. And so as a result, just by uh, sake of the fact that it was a romantic German writer, it does have a lot more German influence in the actual opera itself, as Massenet is probably drawing on that fact, or it's just innate within the plot. So some of these things um, are particularly the more interior drama that happens between the characters, rather than having a lot of choruses and things like that. We really focus on our main characters and what they have to say, and them singing and exchanging a sort of a dialogue. Um, there's not as many theatrical entrances and exits, so that, that Gavotte-type um, scene does not exist, where you have the soprano come in, do some fun things, and then move on. You really, all of the arias have to be showing a particular emotion that's going on um, in the plot already. Um, and another, uh, it's actually interesting to note that this opera was originally made for the Opéra Comique, same place as Menon was meant for, but Opéra Comique, being a uh, family venue, found it was too serious. Um, for their clientele. So actually, it ended up being premiered in German um, in Vienna. In Vienna, they just heard Manon, and they were like, give us something else. And he said, well, I have this Werther. Um, and that went on from there. Of course, it did eventually go to the Opera uh, Comique, but um, not yet. Um, and so again, to tell this story, he draws on um, a lot of leitmotifs. Um, just to back up for a quick second, it's interesting to note that Werther was highly anticipated by the French public. They knew he'd been working on it. I think he worked on it for like some like eight years. It was a very long time. People knew he had the play in his hand, and the news was all like, oh, when's that next opera based on Berthier going to come out? And people were all saying, oh my god, it's going to be the French version of Tristan, and we're going to have our own, you know, this very famous opera now translated into a, a French form, and they were very excited about this. Which, of course, um, oh, another thing I should note is that they already had, before even started writing the opera, actually, they had a hypothetical cast <laughs> set up in the newspapers. They were like, these are the people he's going to uh, make the opera for. Um, so they were very excited about it. Um, of course, this also worked in a negative light where people, again, it was constantly like, oh, it's the next Tristan. So they had very high expectations for how much Wagnerism, uh, shall we say, are going to be in it, which for at least the progressive critics will find out that didn't necessarily reach uh, the heights they had wanted. Anyway, quickly back to leitmotifs, because I love these, obviously. But just to show you um, some things that you can listen to when you hear the opera. Uh, so there's the very famous uh, aria in Act 3, which is by the tenor, which is uh, Pourquoi me réveiller? Um, and this is when he's reading poetry to Charlotte, basically confessing his love to her. Um, and so we hear Charlotte being his um, significant other in this particular plot. And we'll hear the first uh, line here, and that actually becomes a motif that comes back at the end of the opera. So what becomes interesting about this is that here we have Massenet using leitmotifs in a similar way that Wagner does to show sort of the destiny of the characters, right? So he's reading this sort of sad love poetry, and then of course at the end it comes back just after he dies, right? Kind of showing that this is like a sad romantic moment, and you have it, you'll hear it here in the orchestra. So wait, once he expires, it plays very quickly in the orchestra. There it is. Happens again. 
So we have things like that happening in Verter. Now, Verter does go a step farther than Menon. So what Wagner is very famous for is using, you'll have a motif and then you'll alter it. And in the way he alters it, that shows that some sort of other thing is going on. But you can only really hear it musically. And I mean, it's appearing on stage, but the music is really telling you what the inner message of what's going on. And so this also happens in um, Verter. So what we're about to hear right now is Charlotte's motif. So Charlotte doesn't come in with an entrance aria like Menon, very fancy. Um, instead here, her motif plays in the orchestra and people go on talking, basically. So let's just hear that motif. It's an orchestra here. Again. That was Charlotte's, what you heard in the orchestra was this. The ba -da 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 -da. Um, but then what happens in Act 3 is we have this motif of Werther's anguish. So the moment he walks in the room, when he's in Act 3, he's basically coming back to say, um, I love you, Charlotte, but of course she's refusing because she's married. Um, and what we hear in the orchestra is a shortened version of this motif right here, repeated very quick. Sort of, so what it's saying musically is that my anguish is connected to you. Um, and so the music, again, is telling us these interconnections. Um, so I'm just going to play for you Charlotte's motif again. So it was the ba da da da. And now we'll hear it come back in Act 3. Okay, let's just watch the scene just so you can see it. So here he comes in the door, boom, motif goes off. So next we have the very famous, uh, uh, this, in Act 1, there's, they go to a ball um, and they dance there. This is Werther and Charlotte go to this ball. This is before he knows that she's been promised to another man. And then they come back from the ball um, and, of course, uh, then they have this moment where they talk and reveal their love to each other, basically. Um, so what happens, this is one of these very interesting moments where Massenet is sort of drawing on this tradition of Wagnerian transformation, where he likes to uh, sort of transition between scenes by showing, using motifs from a first scene and then sort of moving that in and combining it with motifs from another scene. We can think of, for those of you who saw The Ring, for example, when the gods are going down to Nibelheim, when um, you kind of, there's a motif of Wotan walking that happens, so you hear him stepping, and there's also, you suddenly will hear the hammers come in going bum, 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 as the, the Nibelungans are hammering away. Uh, and moving away from the gods as you hear their motifs fade out. So we see this now in um, Werther. So what we're first going to hear is the waltz theme. So this is the theme of the waltz where everyone's dancing. So then we have the very famous Claire de Lune motif. And so this is sort of the theme of Charlotte and um, Berthier's love, which is also this sort of very romantic theme, but the idea of sort of the inner romantic also being the, the intellectual movement that happened at the time, right? The sort of the inner pain being showed in the, mu in the music. Um, so let's just hear that. What Massenet does with this is that he'll play that Claire de Lune motif and then the waltz theme will come in. So what he's literally doing is making us feel in the music because the stage is obviously not going to change, right? 
but it makes us feel like first we're at the waltz and we kind of hear it and then it slowly fades away as we hear the Claire de Lune motif sort of push in there. So the idea that we're changing place orally, but perhaps not, I mean, and physically, but just our, there's only so much you can do with staging is all I'm saying, especially at that time. So here we're gonna hear the Claire de Lune motif and then you'll hear the waltz theme punctuate throughout. There was it, the waltz. So at that moment, we finally reach home. We finally entered the area in the garden where they're going to have their tete-a-tete, um, their I suppose. What you can see there, again, is this idea of the, the music really, again, moving you from place to place, right? Uh, this last one I wanted to introduce, I read about this, and I thought it was, I'm not the genius who came up with this, but um, I thought it was kind of interesting, actually. It made me think about this, so maybe you'll think about it when you see the opera. Anyway, so now we're in the garden, and they're... Um, uh, Charlotte and Werther are discussing each other, and I mean, this is where Werther tells of his love for her. Um, but what's interesting in this scene is that Charlotte very much has now been put in it. Her mother has recently died. She's taking over the children, and this was a very sad moment for her. And so Charlotte here is um, telling us uh, Werther of that, that she now has all this new responsibility. Um, and then you can hear very musically, it's, it's sort of this, I mean, it's depressing in a sense, but it's, it's this very sort of heavy... Um, sound to it, shall we say. And then all of a sudden, uh, Werther interrupts her, and these, this sort of Wagnerian chromaticism comes, and it becomes very romantic, and he's being like ecstasy, and he's talking about how much, how beautiful she is, and how, um, and how much in love with her he is, which is kind of odd, given the fact that it's like, you, did you just ignore everything that Charlotte was talking about? And now you're like, oh, immediately, oh, you're gorgeous. Um, so it's kind of this strange moment where musically, it's kind of like Massenet is showing this sort of ignorance of Werther. And this is interesting. I know I didn't really go through the plot a lot for a lot of you. But Werther is this ultra-romantic character. Ultra-romantic in the sense that he's in his own interior romantic world. And so in a way, Massenet is showing us with the music that he's so isolated from the world in this inner um, idea of love that he has that he's only really concerned about himself and not really listening to the people around him. And we'll see this especially as the plot progresses when he constantly is begging um, Charlotte to leave her husband. And I mean, although she is in love with him, it's very painful for her. She's the one that has to make the ultimate sacrifice. And it kind of does seem like we see this come back throughout the opera where Werther is kind of just ignoring Charlotte's own desires um, or perhaps what she needs to do. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to think that Massenet maybe had this idea in mind when he was composing these really abrupt transitions musically to show you that, to make you feel that Werther is in this world and Charlotte's in reality. She, um, so she's talking about her mother and then he's basically going to say, he's going to lavish her with praise. And then of course that's when the Claire de Lune motif comes back. So we start to realize maybe the Claire de Lune motif is more associated with Werther than it is with Charlotte. <laughs> Oh, 
transition. Claire de Lune. It's also interesting to think there about the, what attracts us to opera, right? It's really the music, right? And so in that moment, I know I can say for myself, I'm completely seduced by Veritaer. I want, I want Veritaire to sing to me like that. Um, but musically, it takes us into a world that's far more seductive. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to think kind of critically about what is the music seducing us to, to which characters to be um, enamored with, um, to sympathize with. Um, and perhaps, is there a danger there? Is, in a way, is Werther causing a violence to Charlotte there, right? Like, I mean, she obviously, in this production, is very happy to have that happen to her. But I'm just saying, there could be a production that doesn't show it that way. It could be a very interesting regie twist on it. Another thing I didn't mention earlier was that um, Massenet very much made the connection between Werther and Wagner. He called it, uh, this word in French, which is called a drame lyrique. And so what a, uh, this word was particularly used, a, so it's like drame lyrique, so a lyric drama, basically. Um, and this was the French word that was used for music drama, which was, of course, the English translation of the German word that Wagner used to talk about his post-Tristan operas, these ideas, these cohesive wholes. So it seems like Massenet was very much trying to make this connection between this particular opera and uh, Wagner's operas. Of course, as I mentioned before, this sort of didn't necessarily work out in his favor, and so many of the progressive critics were unimpressed. And this did not only follow him in France, this followed him to America. So this, um, this premiered in America in 1894, um, and so at the Metropolitan, and it was sung by a very famous cast, Emma Eames as um, Charlotte, and then Jean de Ritzke as Werther. Uh, uh, and of course the critics, again, were sort of like, oh, well, it's so nice and very popular, it's so great for the masses, but maybe not for the more refined public. Basically sort of insinuating that refined opera goers would prefer the complexity of Wagner, and this didn't live up to that standard. And so while we may think, oh, that didn't affect Werther, it very much did, because Werther was not revived again until 1971, so almost 100 years. And I mean, not to say, just to say where tastes were at. Um, Okay, so, and I mean, just before, because we might not get there, in 1971 it was revived because at the pressing of a very particular tenor, does anyone know who that tenor was? It was Franco Corelli, yes. And he very much gives it a very different feel to it than um, sort of the French, more, I don't want to say nuance, but there's a very French feel to the way it's sung, and then Corelli does a very dramatic Italian um, interpretation, which is exciting, but it's very different, um, and critics ate it up. That is all I have for you today. Um, no, come on, we have two more lectures. That was lecturer Matthew Timmermans exploring Wagner's influence and impact on French opera. To stay up to date with us, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.